0: In my mind, we're also playing with a sense of space and that sense of space is this realm called the Internet or the World Wide Web, both of which are words that talk about web and net, that it's a confined space and that the figures are all dismantled and sort of pulled apart. And there's all these other symbols and shapes that are in there. And I kind of felt that we go to these places or one has the possibility of going to these places and reinventing themselves through the internet. And so it it very much talks about, and this is not just in this work, but in a lot of my other work about the concept of the lens and the social lens and how we use that lens to display ourselves to the outside world. And so within the series of Confetti of the Mind, you have that sort of in that process of the bodies and the ideas being torn apart and reassembled to sort of, it's almost like a Phoenix that's like recontextualizing itself.
1: Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 228th episode, I'm excited to be back once again with Paul Lockney, who was a guest way back in 2014. We talk all about his collage work, which explores analog collage materials from magazines. From various time periods, in a means to explore the concept of the lens or the way that we present ourselves to the world around us. We, of course, talk about the process of putting these collages together and some developments that have come along the way since then. Make sure to check out his website, paullockney.com, and follow him on Instagram, paullockney, and see some of the work, especially before the episode begins. I do want to acknowledge that a lot has changed since this episode was recorded back in May. The death of George Floyd sparked massive protests around the country, around the world, and a demand for social justice and equality. And, of course, I support that. I hope that artists and others that are listening to this podcast are out there doing their part, speaking up, contributing and participating in protests and marches peacefully and I just want to acknowledge that before we dive into this episode if people are wondering why are they not talking about all the other things that are going on. So again, I hope everybody is staying safe out there and also staying creative during these times of change. All right, so if you are new to Studio Break, visit studiobreak.com. We've got a ton of artists up there Each of our posts have images of the artist's artwork, links to their websites. For more information, you can listen right there, or you can go and listen in a variety of other places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, so be sure and click those links, subscribe there. You can always listen on the default player on Studio Break as well, of course. You can find us on social media, so be sure and like our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter at Studio Break and on Instagram at Studio underscore Break, so do that. And with all of those announcements out of the way, here is our interview with Paul Lockney. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. Paul Lockney, how are you doing?
0: David, it's good to hear from you. How are you?
1: Excellent, excellent. You know, I I can't help but, like I said earlier, think about how strange our times are. So I'm sure that we're going to ask about that a little bit. You know, I'm kind of like locked away in my suburban (laughs) apartment complex, you know, outside of Chicago. So, you know, for someone that's kind of living in the Mecca of this, you know, pandemic that we're living in, obviously, I'm sure that's something that's changed your life radically. I guess before we dive into that, where where are we talking to you from today?
0: I am in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn.
1: Right on, right on. Yes. Where are you working at now? I know that last time, like we had talked earlier, you know, it was a number of years. We're going way back to 2014, so it's been quite a long time. What are you doing these days?
0: I work full-time for a prestigious gallery in Chelsea. It's a it's a small group. It's a tight-knit group, and I really respect and like my boss. I think it's a very good fit. Unfortunately, I'm in the position where I am still employed full-time, I feel very grateful for that. A lot of my friends have lost their positions or they're at a significant uh, pay cut. I am experiencing a pay cut. There is some working from home, but I am, in fact, traveling into the city on a somewhat regular basis from Brooklyn into Chelsea and um, just keeping safe with mask and the gloves and You know, experiencing very little human traffic in the subways and Chelsea's like a ghost town. I mean, I'm telling you, I saw tumbleweeds rolling down 26th Street (laughs) the last
1: few weeks. Good gosh. I can't imagine that that experience of going from a a city that's so normally congested and populous, you know, with everything to kind of go to that must be something that has to mess with your head a little bit.
0: It's extremely odd. It's on the sense that like when I'm in Chelsea, I'm in this large building. There's very, very few people there. I kind of was uh, making the analogy. It was almost like a, a science fiction movie where there's people in space and they get up every morning and they're on their treadmill, you know, exercising. And then they have their protein space shake and then they're sending their messages out to their family. And I was like, you know, I don't know how realistic that is, but it's like they're not feeling suicidal after a while. Like, you know, not seeing people that, you know, at all for days and days and days. There's nothing familiar. There's nothing friendly. There's like barely any places open to even get like, you know, a slice of pizza. It's It really sort of digs into the realm of self-sufficiency. I mean, I've always made my food, so I, I've saved a ton of money on just like making food, bringing it in, taking care of myself. It's very much first things first. Personal personal health, recovery, making sure that things are, are squared away.
1: You know, you're talking about this uh, science fiction almost land. You know, I I know that when... All of this went down. I think one of the last things that I played for my drawing class, you know, the last one that I had in, in person was the trailer to uh, 12 Monkeys. And I can't help but think about that, you know, like relative to where we're at because, you know, it almost feels like an adventure, you know, like going to the surface and, you know, checking something out where everything is just normally – you know, so full of uh, things that are moving, and then all of a sudden everything is really still. So, again, it, I can't help but think this is hopefully going to charge a lot of people's studio work, and, you know, obviously we can talk about how it's affected your studio work too. So, before we get to that though, I do want to kind of ask you a little bit about uh, your past just to kind of uh, fill people in. So, are you originally a New Yorker?
0: I am not. I grew up in Northwest Jersey outside of Manhattan. My mom's family is from Manhattan. She grew up in Inwood, which is the most northern neighborhood in the island of Manhattan. And so as a kid, I would come into the city in the 70s and the 80s. I was exposed to a lot of museums. Uh, I went to a public high school called Mount Olive High School in Morris County, Morris County New Jersey, which had a pretty fantastic arts program for a public high school I was exposed to a lot of the of the basics my parents also supported me by there was a guy who was a children's book illustrator in the next town Robert Blake he did a lot of just excellent form and structure drawing from nature working on still lives my introduction to oil painting was extremely loose and uh informal and it was just like that sort of got me going and then when I was in high school, I was exposed to this sort of paradigm-shifting experience. For, as a young person, I went to this Summer Arts Institute, which was hosted at Rutgers University by the New Jersey Arts and Council Society or something like that. But it was a five-week sleepaway camp. It was with all these kids from New Jersey, all over New Jersey, and it was visual arts, performance art, dance, jazz, inter-arts, and it really... Created the you know the feeling inside of me that this is where I belong. I belong in an environment that has the arts, it has a sense of freedom, it has you know exploration, excitement. But as a young person, I graduated high school, went to Philadelphia, went to the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, which was traditionally an atelier school, which meant that the classes that they taught were painting, sculpture, and printmaking. And that's it. They were modeled off of an atelier model. So life drawing, cast drawing, figure studies, color studies, working from life, really extremely rigorous drawing and painting and sculpture program. But that was also my introduction to printmaking, which I became thoroughly addicted to. But I'll say a lot of the early education was very much about copying old masters. You know, my introduction, my early heroes were you know, Rembrandt, Degas, Rodin, going to the Rodin Museum and to draw his statues. And then Picasso, Matisse, Kandinsky, it was a lot of that was my early education. I think that there's something about the copying process, which brings as a younger student, um, and not really knowing this as much, but the idea of appropriation, which informs my later work. It's the idea of like, really copying and taking and trying to use what sources are in front of you and sort of take those influences and make them your own. And so I thought about this before we chatted that what I realized as a young student, I had this experience that wasn't in the school, but it was in the off time. I was listening to a radio program in Philadelphia. This is actually important for me to talk about is that I can't remember what the station was, but they had two songs that were, both by Led Zeppelin. And one of them was, and I think it was whole lot of love. And one of them was when they were still just kind of working it out. They played the song and it sounded like an average blues band, cover band playing at a bar. And the second song they played was Led Zeppelin playing whole lot of love. And it's one of those fascinating things where like, to me as a young student, I was like, Oh, that's what transcending your influences is about. hmm. It's the same people, it's the same song, but it's two vastly different sounds of the song. I don't even know if they do this on the radio anymore, but they would, uh, you know, they'd have a contest where they'd play like half a second of a famous song or one second of a famous song. and People would have to call in and guess who made that song. And people were able to identify those things because I think it speaks about when a group of individuals works together, there's like a synthesis that happens with their sound. It's sort of, it's something that is melded together. There's a sort of magic that happens with certain people. Now, that can happen in visual arts and dance and performance and poetry, but just in the basis of music, it's something where once I heard that, I was like, oh, that's right. There's something that happens when you take a lot of influences and there's something internal that shifts, then you make it your own.
1: Well, it's really interesting to think about that related to some of the artists that you had mentioned and oddly enough artists that I feel like I've become a little bit more familiar with as time has moved on. Cause you know, like since we've talked, you know, aside from getting married and <laughs> traveling um, you know, like I, I've been to the Rodin museum in Paris a couple of times and you cool. know, I, I know that I've also seen the, um, the the Picasso museum there. And I'm thinking specifically of those like linear kind of like line drawings in space that are kind of figurative. And then obviously, you know, Rodin made all sorts of figurative works. And so one of the things that's interesting to me to think about that, especially because you mentioned both of those influences is that there's definitely uh to me anyways a, a figurative element to uh, the things that you're exploring currently and have previously explored too because obviously there's recognizable figurative elements, fragments of you know you know piece of skin, flesh, you know, et cetera but it's interesting exactly to think about the way that those influences kind of then shift you into into doing something different or or figuring out a way to kind of make it your own or to kind of add to that conversation?
0: I mean, look, I can't help but deny that the early student years um, as a traditionalist working with the figure or the landscape and portrait has somehow got into my creative DNA. I don't know if you could look at my work now and say, this guy's a figurative artist or he's a landscape artist, but those elements, whether it's the psychic landscape There's some work that I do that looks like it's referencing off a landscape, but I'm very much interested in shopping about the language of abstraction and how that fits into sort of like contemporary mindset. But my main medium, and it has been for the last 12 years, is collage, but specifically analog collage. So it's stuff that's sourced from contemporary magazines, and it's all done by hand. But all of the years before, like, Hours and hours of you know drawing, painting, printmaking, printmaking for more than a decade, being involved even in graduate school at Rutgers University with the Brodsky Center, and then having certain skill sets become prevalent enough to work in shops. So working in professional shops for a couple of years afterwards. All of these things sort of culminate into then later on getting into collage which was after graduate school so you're talking about some of the figurative elements in there well sure i think that there's something about when i'm approaching a piece of paper like holding that piece of paper as an object i'm using a razor to to draw it's working deductively it's taking things away i mean as i have in my my artist statements like i tend to treat contemporary magazines as if they're anthropological document and any excavation that happens is intentionally sort of removing figurative symbolic uh or other forms to then be recontextualized into something that's
1: that's new i'm i'm curious you know what that transition was in terms of kind of moving towards collage was there something that was you know specific i mean is it just about the immediacy of being able to kind of source these things and kind of work through them and the way that relates to the content that you're interested in. What was the, the big jump for you in terms of kind of working exclusively more with collage?
0: The main jump was the birth of my son 13 years ago. I had to give up a studio that I had been working in and that kind of work wasn't really going away and it sort of fell by the wayside. That's a huge part of it. Part of it's transitioning from a large room to a table surface I had just started to dabble in collage before, and there's something about the fragmented nature of being a new parent. If you have an hour to work, you do an hour's worth of work. And at the time, I was um, cutting these fragments up, sourcing them, putting them on a the table, looking up, looking around, seeing like what fit where, and then having to put them back into a plastic binder and stick them in a book and put them on a shelf. You know, it still seemed extremely important for me to keep making work no matter. Again, it was an hour. I would do an hour's worth of work. So there was something about that sort of play, piecing together. And I think what's important is that on my website, it's, it does still contain my first body of work, which is called the end of days or so yesterday. And I think it's also very much like emulating the heroes. And that is for me, the Dada's and surrealists, but being very mindful of what's been done by whom at one time, and trying to avoid certain tropes. And what I mean by that is that that specific body of work is using magazines between the late 1950s and early 70s, really throughout the duration of the Vietnam War. And using those source materials, Time and Life magazine, the very particular kind of color saturation with that paper, I think people can recognize that kind of printing, especially folks that know their magazines and know collage, or even artists that like, you know, they, they look at analog materials. And at the time, being really influenced by, for one, visiting the Creationist Museum in Kentucky. I don't know if you've been there before, but if you have $23 million, you can make a museum about whatever you want to <laughs> make a museum about. And also seeing uh, the documentary Bible Camp. And there's certain things that influenced that certain cultures that think in linear terms that there's a beginning and that there's definitely an end that the end of days or so yesterday were about highlighting certain dramatic elements that were happening in society today. And that for folks that maybe believe that the world's going to end anyway, I felt like they were shirking their responsibilities of really being present and working towards present solutions. And so it goes against the linear thinking and plays with more of a cyclical pattern that's why i was sort of dealing with the vietnam era about that pattern of magazines at that time frame and so what i also noticed david and this is also interesting because it ties it back to the idea of the musical influences is that as a young person being exposed to records and cassettes and the the sort of thoughtful programming that went into artists that their first song on their album opened the album and the four or five songs on the first side and then the space you have to turn the record over and you have to turn the cassette over to then listen to the introduction of the second side and so albums were sort of thought about i thought in terms of you know a complete gesture for a period of time there's a certain series of ideas with feelings that went into that. We don't have that anymore. Because with digital, it just blows all the way through. And I think what I realized is, I think it was like early graduate school, like going to bars at that time, seeing that, uh, that jukeboxes no longer had entire albums. They have like one or two hits from that album. And I was like, what about the other songs? And so to bring it back to the end of days or so yesterday, I would think about the source materials, the series of concepts that supported that work at that time, very much like albums and that the individual works are the songs on that album. Because if you look at my website, the next body of work after that is conversations from the void, which is from like 2009 to 2014. And it's a shift. I mean, it's like a mood shift. It's a conceptual shift. It's material shift. They're also, you know, using contemporary magazines, But a lot of that work, the fragments were then taken, scanned in, enlarged, cut out again, and then larger collages were made. But those were interiors, very seductive, beautiful interiors, that the people and material items were taken out. And then the negative spaces were recontextualized. So it was about that void of space or the lack of presence, but the presence was still there because – The human gesture was still captured by the cutting and removal of the form. And with architectural space, I think it was appropriate to have some of this work become three by three feet or two and a half by three feet, or in some ways, whatever I could afford at the time in terms of the printing that I could do. And that work was, you know, successful in the sense that I showed it a bunch. I've sold a lot of it. A lot of people have really enjoyed it. But then I think with a lot of my work, like after that conversation is over, it shifts to something else.
1: Well, one of the things that's interesting to me, this is actually where we left off uh, back in 2014, is that the if I look at it in comparison to, you know, maybe some of the other work, the range for it is much more, you know, analogous or monochromatic. There's more of like a color relationship. And again, that could be kind of like based off of the magazines maybe that you're pulling from, but does that make sense? Cause like, especially the stuff that I'm seeing that's more recent seems to incorporate maybe a wider variety of colors or, you know, different strategies.
0: Well, absolutely. I mean, part of that work from 2009, 10, 11 uh, was more monochromatic and decisively so. And, it's also giving the appearance that they're not all from one source. It's like if there was a blue or a gray or a white or a green background, it was um, you know being selective and finding them and sort of you know sourcing them and then sort of sort of doing the slow burn and the compositional dance of like figuring out how it so-called works before they were set down.
1: You talked about you know scanning in, in terms of some of these works. Are there a lot of manipulations that take place in, in terms of, you know, how you might source something or, or work through it? Very little. Okay,
0: because I'm a traditionalist in that way, and I think that the scanning and the enlarging is based off of a couple things. One, coming from uh, a history of doing printmaking and being in love with the history of printmaking, much of that work is small, it's modest, it's intimate. And it asked the viewer to come a lot closer. I mean, have you ever seen Goya's Los Caprichos in person? They'll melt your your head. (laughs) You know, seeing some of Rembrandt's smaller work, you know, it asked the viewer to come closer and, you know, having source material be dictated by its, you know, printing template. It's a certain size. So having the scanning and enlarging was to try to break out of that. And that, sure, one could easily make something in, um, I wouldn't say necessarily easily, but one could facilitate Photoshop or other programs to create digital collages. But I'm not interested in digital collages. It's important for me to know that the viewer knows it's done by hand. and When they see it in person, they can see the hand in the work, even at a larger scale.
1: You know, thinking about the more recent bodies of work, again, you've got a couple of more since then. You know, how have things kind of changed, you know, shifting forward into the series entitled Big Impossible, which is listed on your site?
0: The Big Impossible is this concept. It's the idea that it's the difficult to impossible transition for adolescent boys to become men. That is not my idea. That comes from the Fox tribe from, I think it's around uh, Idaho. Mm -hmm. I think it's a valuable idea that comes from that Native American tribe. I became obsessed with transitional spaces and the lack of ritual that seems to permeate at least American culture, as I see it, and someone who is raising a a son in this culture and having the potential lack of rituals to define, like, again, the difficult to impossible transition for adolescent boys to become men. So in those collages, which I loved making, you can scan and see that they almost appear like they're maquettes or sculptures or what I call impossible situations in these rooms or environments that are all very sterile. Small plinths on the ground, white austere backgrounds, and the illusion of chairs or stools or countertops or objects that have what seem to be fleshy swirls or static patterns or storms. And they're very much encapsulating sort of emotional tantrums that are happening within those spaces and it's really sort of capturing out a glimpse you know for that moment in time
1: well and it's interesting to me to think about you know the the work that came before this too because there's i I don't know how to describe it really other than to say that there's almost like a, a space in it you know and some of them you know very literally like that but especially uh the first one you know that's from that series you know becomes this almost like an interior space as opposed to something that's really kind of flattening out. So it's interesting to think about how the different bodies of work will kind of really switch in terms of, you know, the idea that you just kind of laid out and described.
0: They're both using architecture as a template, but the series of conversations from the void are recognizable interior spaces and the spaces for the big impossible are the interiors of the mind and all the feelings that go on between the space between our ears
1: is there any kind of like pre-planning or preparation or lack of a better word brainstorming sketching anything that kind of helps influence this or is it really like a process where you describe it
0: that series in particular was done when i had a, green, uh, a studio in greenpoint which was a studio outside of where i lived and so i guess my process in some ways was i love keeping a clean studio when i return to it and maybe have whatever i was working on before my space is clean and uh in order. I'm kind of particular that way. But I think a lot of it comes from doing sketches and doing drawings and sort of making little diagrammatic ideas on paper. If you look at the piece called Tantrums, which is one of my favorite ones, there's a, a stool that looks like it's kicked over. It's almost like Iggy Pop came in and just kicked the fucking thing over. <laughs> and there's a. a st- there's like a little tirade of of fleshy patterns. and above that there's this two-tone gray shape, which is like a like a scribble. And it's a captured scribble that's rendered a couple times, put on transfer paper, put onto a shape, and then cut out. So there's like a few stages of how it's made. But that's really coming from looking at peanuts cartoons. and when the character is experiencing a sense of frustration, They have that abstract symbol above their head, that sort of stormy, you know, nucleus of just swirl. What's any more appropriate than like childhood angst or teenage angst or like angst that can't be dealt with in an appropriate way, sort of stewing from within? So it's playing with symbols and shapes like that and just having fun with these compositions.
1: I would imagine then sketching is something that you're constantly kind of using as a a way to kind of work through ideas then?
0: I mean, it's its own language. And I think it's also appropriate to to say that writing or handwriting, I still am, you know, someone who uses script. My script as a young person, as a teenager, was close to chicken scratch. (laughs) And as a student at the Academy of Fine Arts, I had a drawing seminar with an older gentleman named James Rosen, who was a professor from Georgia who came to visit. And this whole semester was about handwriting as a form of drawing and to be very mindful about the tension and release that happens when the lines hit the paper and through him, it sort of was something that got again into my re- my learning DNA as a person, as a young person. And that to be very mindful about how I'm writing how I'm making marks. And then later on be- in terms of journal writing for years and years and years, does it relate exactly to when I'm making like abstract images kind of, but it's also just being mindful about just that, that fluidness and fluentness of pen in hand on paper on a regular basis, you know? And sometimes a lot of it's just like unconsciously stream of consciousness, like doing morning pages from like the artist way. If your viewers know what that is, it's sort of just, you know, getting it out of your system. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, some of the compositions, that are in the bunch of PDF images that I sent you, the early ones, the ones that are confetti of the mind, and um, the the work that I showed at Leslie Heller in September, those background structures were from doing sketches before I made the collages.
1: Well, and that piece, again, that was certainly one that I wanted to highlight a little bit. And this one, you know, like this is maybe one that's really pronounced just because the the background has all of these really kind of rich, saturated, darker kind of colors. And then, you know, the kind of more vibrant colors that again, to me struck me still almost as something that's figurative over the top of it. Maybe talk a little bit about that piece in particular.
0: Someone fortunately owns that in their home. They have very good taste (laughs) to answer your question. Like how does a body of work start? I think it's just a series of just continuing to make work and sometimes things come out of left field. And so there is a series of pieces that were just made before that. This was 2016, 2017. As you know, nothing's done in a vacuum. You know, So what we're describing is that they're on black paper and that the backgrounds are primarily rich, saturated, sensual varieties of black that come from the perimeters or peripheries of advertising, that the object that's being sold or the text that's promoting the object is removed. And so a lot of it's sort of the sheen or the sort of seductive quality, the saturation of the printing that's creating these little structures, which I thought of in some ways as nooks or shelves or sort of templates for a trophy, and that the brighter areas, they are figurative because when I think about magazines, it's very much like excavating a anthropological document i'm very interested in both masculine and feminine forms and taking those out but also being very decisive because you know for many years that ambiguity has been a really strong thread in the work and this is really important that as a visual tool it's to play with things that are both familiar and unrecognizable because when they're played at certain tension they do something to me as an artist It keeps me interested because I don't know what I'm looking at right away. And it takes a minute or so for that to reveal itself. In some ways it doesn't reveal itself right away, but that's something I feel that I like to make work that rewards slow looking. And some of that is even with the very simple work or say so-called more minimal look that has from conversations from the void. But by the time that, uh, the Confetti of the Mind series came about in my day-to-day of working. I was working as a studio assistant to the sculptor Sarah Z, which you may know, and some of your viewers may know. And so I was working as a liaison between the studio and the MTA to go once a week and see this beautiful project of the 96th street subway station and sort of be the eyes and ears on the ground and see this incredible thing emerge and then do some stuff in her studio to help this extremely brilliant, prolific sculptor make this work. So any artist that you know, that has worked for an artist, it can be extremely demanding physically, emotionally, mentally. And so, where I was at that point in time, I realized that I had to wake up two to three hours earlier in my day to get my work done first. Because once I left work, I had nothing by the time I got home. And so the extremely fastidious, detailed surgical components of how that work is constructed, I think in some ways is referencing my experience of working for an artist that worked with fastidious, detailed, surgical reconstructed things. It's, it's strange, and I've never really talked about that. So that's part of it. Do you look at that work and think that I'm influenced by her? I don't know if that's necessarily clear, but that's how I was sort of feeling as an artist. But within the framework of that work, of that Confetti the Mind and the work around that series, is that you know I'm playing with the idea of space again, but the, the black shape that's in the background is sort of, you can see that some of it creates almost like a, a chevron shape in some of them, you know, that in my mind that we're also playing with a sense of space and that sense of space is this realm called the internet or the world wide web, both of which are words that talk about web and net, that it's a confined space and that the figures are all dismantled and sort of pulled apart. And there's all these other symbols and shapes that are in there. And I kind of felt that we go to these places or one has the possibility of going to these places and reinventing themselves through the Internet. And so it, it very much talks about, and this is not just in this work, but in a lot of my other work about the concept of the lens and the social lens and how we use that lens to display ourselves to the outside world. And so within the series of Confetti of the Mind, you have that sort of in that process of the bodies and the ideas being torn apart and reassembled to sort of it's almost like a phoenix that's like recontextualizing itself. Does that make sense? And when, when you see that?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And so the idea of the lens, I feel like I want to share on this as well, because I am also an ancient history nerd. This is something that's been a big part of my life. Read a lot about it. I've traveled to cool places in the world to see certain sites, you know, it's sort of part of what I really love. And it hasn't necessarily made its way into my work, but there are indirect sort of tangential things that do. And one of that is learning about the Etruscan civilization, which were the precursors to Rome. They were sort of this so-called noble class of people that existed before Rome became anything. all of these excavations that were done in their grave sites compared to many of the Mediterranean cultures that lived at that time it was the Etruscans that had hundreds if not thousands of these little bronze mirrors and they're maybe four or five inches in circumference they have like a beautiful inlay descriptive series of symbols or these like you know these little analogies of like you know people and whatever the images were on the other side would be a polished piece of brass they had a mirror and in this book it talked about that for their culture the people that held the mirror could control how they looked and if they can control how they look they can control how they presented themselves to the outside world and this is 2600 years ago it's the idea of the lens and the controlling of one's own image And fast forward, you know, with the invention of photography, if you ever looked at early photography from the 1850s, 60s, 70s, early photo studios where people had to, like, sit still for a long period of time, people's relationship to the camera was very static and stale. And, like, you know, people didn't certainly smile in a lot of those early photos, if you (laughs) know what I
1: mean. Sure.
0: The the whole idea of inventing, say, cheese was not till decades later. And now – you know, what are there, like 13 trillion images a day right. from people using their lens to control how they look and how they present it to the outside world? So, in some ways, we've changed very little as a society. It's just that technology has upped up this, this process for us. And that's the kind of stuff that I'm really interested in when I'm making this work.
1: No, absolutely. And again, I'm, you know, I've, as you've been talking about this, I've been looking at, thrill of uh, transgressions and thinking about that because you had talked a little bit about some of the more figurative elements when you kind of referenced it almost kind of looking like a phoenix but to kind of think about that in relationship to this one again it's kind of interesting to I guess think about that representation of you know what it is that we're looking at or you know again kind of taking all these sourced things and then you know putting it back together uh, to present something. Yeah, I don't know. Sorry, I'm trailing.
0: <laughs> no, that's okay. It seems like I'm really appreciative that you asked me on and you wanted to see 10 images and I was like, it, it was hard for me to choose those 10 images. Sure. Because there's a lot of images to choose from and I think that it would have been interesting and I know that you have way too much on your plate to do this, but if you were to choose 10 images that you wanted to look at or mm-hmm. talk about. And I think that One of the more valuable lessons I encountered in the last, well, since we spoke last, and maybe you can identify with this, is that I had two visits in my studio. Now, I have to say, once I moved to Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, it's the last stop on the R. On the map, it looks like way out there. It's not that far. It's actually a lovely neighborhood. I I work from home. I have a sizable space because I do collage, works on paper. It's non-toxic. I can spread out. And initially I was like, no one's going to come to
1: my (laughs) studio.
0: Um, But no, people that want to come will come. And so the people who have come along are, you know, curators and artists and friends and gallerists. And so two of those visits, I had work displayed that was the brand new work. And maybe at the time, one of them was the confetti of the mind. And in my mind, I was like, it's the new stuff. Like, ta-da, like it's the, my babies, like the, the newest ones are the ones I love the most. Mm-hmm. And I had this stuff up and I'm like, they're going to love it. And this gallerist was like, uh, no, <laughs> but these works on the table. Yes. We love these. We want six of them. And so what that taught me is that my own internal hierarchy of placing value systems on my own work, like my A pieces, my B pieces, I mean, had to be thrown out. Because like I'm the artist, I'm the maker, I'm not the curator, I'm not the gallerist, I'm not the designer. And so what people want or what they respond to, like I don't really have control over. You know what I mean? Like I have control over the quality of the images that I make, maybe and how they're put out to the world to an extent. But when and it happened again because I had Peter Gind from Leslie Heller come over and I was hesitant about showing a couple of works, one of which I had shown to people before, and he was like, I love it, I want it in the show, and it's a black on black composition, very poetic, beautiful, and it sold opening night. And in my mind, it was not one of my A pieces. So, again, part of me is like, what do I know about right. like, what people are going to like? you know? And that is also in a beautiful home. Again, so when I'm making stuff, I'm still making them for myself. And it's I, I can't present them that they're going to sell and they're going to go anywhere because I don't have control. I'm powerless over that. But I like – making them and seeing like where things have changed in the last five years. I think, or, or you know, and that's a, a, really wonderful thing to experience because like in the end and the end meaning like when I'm dead, <laughs> um, it's the documentation that I was here is the work, right? Not my collection of stuff.
1: It's the work. Well, one that I want to talk about too, you know, that's more recent is this one called a spiritual signature. It's just interesting to think about the way that, you know, some of them will shift so dramatically in terms of, I don't know, even just the way that they're arranged or, you know, the amount of repetition that's kind of utilized in some of them. Is this something that you would, with this piece kind of describe, you know, similarly in terms of the same concerns that you were kind of describing a few minutes ago? Some of the
0: conceptual concerns are the same. And in some ways, if there's a time to revamp my website, there should be a singular page for work that is of these sort of trophy type pieces. Spiritual signature is one. Another one is anodyne shrine, which is also in that PDF and that they are dealing with these impossible situations where you have a source material that has an object that casts a shadow. And using that and working around that, that tells the eye that somehow these things are existing in space. There's something that's there, right? And that there's a sort of floating storm around that and is a repetitive pattern. It's playing with the idea of camouflage. It's looking at those patterns and shapes, but using masculine and feminine forms to play with those shapes, right? So in some ways it's about hiding in real time. It's like certain themes have materialized that's pervasive throughout the images and some are erotic, psychologically charged, there's sexual undertones and it's like the illusion of these impossible situations. And it's not unlike illusions offered by advertisers to seduce us into buying temporary happiness. So I think with these trophy ones, there is this sort of weird weaving in and out of space, right? It's like this very strange seductive space where you have some cues that there's like a lip or maybe part that's recognizable as a body part, but then you have that woven shape, right? And that shape is the molecular structure of dimethyltryptamine, which some people call the spirit molecule. Right. And the, and the shape itself is color constructed by a harmonious building of colors of the of the spectrum, rainbow colors. Right, right. And again, it still plays with the idea of the spectrum as a lens and that the lens is a filter from one thing to another thing. It's how we're presenting ourselves. And do you, ever, do you ever watch Star Trek from the 60s? Do you ever see the, the that series?
1: Yeah, I have. I haven't watched it, you know, kind of religiously to know <laughs> plot points of episodes and stuff like that.
0: Okay. Well, there's like, you know, I, I, I was a devotee. I have two of the seasons <laughs> on DVD. They're, they're so brilliant in their, like, social deconstruction, their stories, their, their props, their design from the 60s. It's so good, so much of it. One of the episodes, I'm going to try to tie this together one of the episodes they come across some alien group that has some weapon that if you point it at someone it reduces you down to just your salt component so it just puts you down into this weird geometric form that's your salt mm-hmm. and so what are you made of i mean so sort of this idea of like quantum physics like what exactly in your water your salt your you know matter and so the spirit signature, it's like it's this, you know, I, again, I try to make work that rewards slow looking, but because it's an intimate scale, it's like 12 by nine, that there's something that's pulsating about it. And I'm not here to like talk about or promote dimethyltryptamine. It's just something that I think a lot of people are very interested in. It's something that's become part of a culture of some spiritual seeking Some healing, some awareness. A lot of people travel down to the rainforest of South America to find shamans that help them find what's so ayahuasca Mm -hmm. and dimethyltryptamine is, you know, the uh, synthetic of something that exists in nature, exists in our brain. And apparently it exists in our brain very much like adrenaline does and is only triggered under certain circumstances and that apparently theoretically it's triggered when people are dying because it gives people this euphoric state but who really knows so it's like all of this information you know could be curious for a conversation piece but when it's sort of encoded into a a collage in some ways it's sort of just like playing with a picture plane and encoding a certain logic with like color shapes and forms and Making something look—I mean, basically, like does it look cool? I mean, I think it looks cool. Do you, like, do you think it looks cool?
1: Oh, you're asking me now? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Abso- no, absolutely. I mean, again, I think that's it's one fun. of the that's one of the things um, you know that I really like about your work is that you can kind of really get lost in it, you know. And here you kind of describe these qualities. It makes a lot of sense to me just because you kind of zone out almost, in, in terms of kind of seeing the way—I don't know—it's—it's it's weird. It's almost like it kind of. Puts it in a context where you're seeing it, but not seeing it. I don't know. Like I start, I start thinking about the way that the shapes are kind of there, but then I'm also not conscious of it. Which
0: is very much about the premise of camouflage.
1: Right, right. No. And I think that's one of the things that becomes really exciting about it, you know? And I think just generally about your work is, is trying to feeling like it kind of feels recognizable, but then not recognizing it almost, you know, like it's, it's part of some of these fragments or, you know, some of these things that you've been talking about when I think about the. You know the way that they're sourced or kind of put together, so they kind of f- feel familiar but unfamiliar. Which again, maybe might describe that that process that you were just talking about in terms of thinking about DMT or kind of something that's gonna, I don't know, lift a veil almost or so. I don't know. It's it's interesting.
0: It's the play of ambiguity within the picture plane. You know, it's sort of just like that. It's as, as a tool, and it's not something that like I invented or came up with. I mean, it's something where like you can turn on the television and start to watch a commercial and how it starts out is one story. And then in a few moments, it's a different story. They're not telling, they're not being straightforward with you, right? It's like, it's, it's something where it's the familiar and unrecognizable where it's like whether they're selling you sex, but they're really selling you a car kind of thing Mm -hmm. or they're selling you a self-esteem as a man. And it's really just something else. It's something where, How these things unfold, it's just sort of being mindful of that. Now, I'm not using direct appropriated advertising. A lot of my stuff is cut apart and recontextualized and made much more abstract than that.
1: Well, right on. I want to make sure, especially if there's something, you know, that you... Wanted to make sure that we talked about or highlighted. I mean, if there's something that kind of sticks out to you.
0: Yeah, well, for one, today, May 9th, is World Collage Day. I don't oh, know if gosh. You know
1: that. I didn't realize this.
0: <laughs> and I wanted to read a quote from the high priest, Max Ernst. He said Collage is the noble conquest of the irrational, the coupling of two realities, irreconcilable in appearance, upon a plane which apparently does not suit them. Now, Ernst is one of the people that influenced me as a young person. Same with Hannah Hook, uh, John Hartfield, you know, these people from that time who were dealing with like, well, their source materials, but also by these immense world events around them. Again, there's also, you know, I love those artists. I love certain people, but there's also another quote that I have sort of held onto for a while. And I think it's by Richard Sarri. He's like, you're, you're only as good as the obscurity of your sources. And, like, while it's, you know, great to be in love with certain people and certain artists and to emulate that, you know, when I see that folks are really heavily referencing other people and stuff, it's sort of like I'm not sure, you know, you got to kind of dig deeper, you know, and sort of find out and like just I've made, you know, what I'm showing on Instagram is just sort of like the tip of the iceberg. Like, I'm not going to show all the terrible work that I've made because that's all the sort of foundation to f- sort of see what's good, regardless of what my own internal hierarchy is. Like I definitely have made like shit tons of that, you know, I don't know if you bleep out curses on this podcast. Oh no, it's but, fine. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, even something that's uh success at last, you know, which has, again, the sort of hallmarks of like the ambiguity. It's this impossible situation. There's shadows cast on the floor and there is just, mound of body parts that are just deflated together or sort of playing with the curvilinear shapes of it and out of the mouth is expelling these. And it's very much being playful and whimsical and having the hand and just sort of drawing these elements out and then cutting them out. But the success at last, that means a lot of things to a lot of different people. But I think for me in this piece, it's just like, it's just... Clearly, you can see that there's masculine and feminine forms. There's a lot of different people in that shape. And for me, it's like one giant ego deflation of all these people. That would be successful. Because to tie it on of like what's going on in the outside world with COVID-19 and people becoming more polarized than ever. I mean, if anything, we can get out of this is how to treat each other better to be a little bit kinder to people, to have a little bit more integrity of how you deal with your neighbors, how you deal with your community. And your community can be around the corner. It could also be online. That's what I would hope, you know, it's like, if, if anything, it's like isolation is doing a lot of, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but it's done some very strange things to my mind. I can still be a great dad on top of that, work in my studio, but it doesn't mean that I'm not completely affected, you know, mentally, spiritually, psychologically, but doing my best to get out of my own way, you know? So a lot of this stuff I sort of channel that into the work.
1: No, I I absolutely agree with you because you know we're in a time that's so unprecedented, and I think again for me, like I was talking to somebody about this, it's it's really hard to kind of even recognize where things are going to be, or
0: no one knows
1: what what is normal, you know. Well, um, I
0: mean, I wish that someone made the "What Is Normal for Dummies" book five years ago because I, I mean, just even that by itself, no one really knows what normal is. But as artists, I think um, creative designers, poets, writers, dancers, to understand like what the landscape of the creative realm is going to be, well, I'll just have to speak for visual artists. We don't know what the art world is going to look like. There's a lot of places that have closed. A lot of people have folded. You know, It's just too much. Only the bigger people can sort of hold on for this stuff. And so, again, as New Yorkers, people got through September 11th they got through the financial crisis of 08 they got through hurricane sandy which was insane you know and people will get through this but no one will know like the idea of like i'm working towards something to i mean now it's like i'm working towards something for my online exhibition that's great people are having opportunities people are finding opportunities people are being more resourceful than their maybe earlier awareness was of how resourceful we can be. And also, as much as this is an isolating factor, that the reliance and asking for help of other people and joining in camaraderie to build upon something seems to be what I've noticed is this amazing force that's happening.
1: I absolutely agree. I mean, again, I feel like it really is like a different world entirely to think about you know what you appreciate or the way that you're reflecting on things i i know certainly i am and i guess i'm just kind of curious i mean would you say that then in in that way that you are looking for kind of like a silver lining or a positive or you know positive that there is going to be something that comes out of this that at the very least interesting or something that challenges us or
0: i think it's reasonable for someone to find a silver lining but we don't know there's there are too many unknowns. It's uh, that's a big question, David. You know, I still think, again, it's like, what am I doing to help the next person? Mm-hmm. That's not just like I know this isn't. podcast for artists in their studios, but like that's a very selfish, self-seeking profession. <laughs> it's great that people love the work, but. Me holding up in my studio to make work is not helping the world per se. Do
1: you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. No, totally.
0: Like me making sure that I could help my neighbor pull their card up the stairs because they're 80. And seeing them out the window, going out in the foyer, making sure I have my mask and gloves on. Just just being mindful. I, I don't know. You know, it's like, what can you do?
1: Right, right. Well, hopefully, again, it'll bring about a real shift in terms of the way that everything goes, you know? Again, I have to kind of feel like I'm looking at it in that sense that there's got to be something that makes us a lot more aware of everything and each other and, you know, like you were kind of talking about a little bit to come out of this, you know? And I think it's weird to say that it feels like in some senses it has, you know, just even in my interactions with people seem much more friendly in most in most senses. You know, maybe not when we look at the news or something, but.
0: No, you can't. You can't look at the news. It's all negative. That's the whole that's they they sell it that way. That's that's totally designed. I feel like what would be helpful, at least maybe in New York, is that once this gets all said and done, and everyone's vaccinated. They have a parade that's just high fives (laughs) or a parade of just people hugging each other. You know, like that will bring it back. I'm sure there's gonna be a lot of parties. I look forward to that. I look forward to being outside. I mean, after you and I talk, I'm going to get geared up. I'm going to go for a run along the water, which is one of the benefits of living in my neighborhood, which mm-hmm. is quite nice. And, um, you know, I'll say hello to all the people I see sitting out for other houses.
1: No, I, it's funny you mentioned that cause I've been kind of running religiously the past, well, pretty much since this started. So even just kind of appreciating, you know, like I'm looking outside and realizing there's a tree that hadn't had anything budding on it two days ago and I can recognize that it is starting to come in or, you know, the, when you're running and you smell something, it kind of, you kind of appreciate it differently. And again, it's weird to kind of become familiar with the same people. You know, I, I can tell if there's a neighbor that's kind of left their house to go outside for a cigarette. Cause I can smell it like from the corner. So I sure. tur- I turn the corner and I'm like, Oh, that guy's out. I'm going to wave to him. So again, I think it's interesting to think about, I guess all of these things related to, to what's coming, but to kind of tie a bow onto this, are there things that you're kind of working towards in this environment? Cause I know, again, a lot of artists have been because of that unknown have had to kind of reschedule shows or anything, but are you kind of putting anything in the works in terms of putting some work that you've been making out or
0: was, well, we spoke earlier that one of the reasons why you and I are having this conversation It's because I took a series of actions like a month ago and I just reached out to people individually through Instagram to talk about this post that was put out by Studio Associate, which is run by this terrific artist, curator, uh, Jen Hitchens in Brooklyn. And so you saw it and you responded. You're one of a few people that responded. So I think part of it's like is really just making work, taking actions, staying in touch with people You know, I am slowly working on larger work, the most three recent landscapes that I put up, my sort of fractured landscapes, not the digital ones on Instagram. Those are from the end of graduate school, but I thought I want to tie them together because it's sort of interesting how things make circles in some ways. Mm -hmm. I made those three the uh, sort of sensitivity studies for two larger works that I have going on that I'm butting my head up against a little bit. So I did those studies to sort of just keep, keep fresh and keep playing, you know, keep loose and keep like in the work. But don't be surprised if I start posting a lot of, of drawings and sketches and other fun stuff because the collage is great, but now sometimes I feel like i need a little bit more immediacy that also includes human contact. So I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's very, Is I look
0: forward to it. It was great.
1: And just remind everybody, too, where, where's is it Instagram that's the best place to kind of stay up to date with the most current stuff?
0: Yeah, my Instagram is my name. It's paul.lockney, It's L-O-U-G-H-N-E-Y. And that's also my website, paullockney.com
1: Well, right on. Well, again, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been fun catching up, and you've left me with plenty to think about. That's for sure.
0: I'm glad. David, take care.
1: Thanks so much again to Paul for joining me. Go and check out his work at paullockney.com and follow him on Instagram at paul.lockney. If you enjoyed listening today, visit studiobreak.com and check out some of the other guests that we've had on. Each of our posts have images of the artist's artwork, links to their websites, and these in-depth interviews, which you can listen to right there in the default player on Studio Break. Or click those links and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play so that you never miss one. It is great hearing from listeners that enjoy the podcast, so thanks UARK Painting, who left a review on Apple Podcasts. Again, glad that you enjoyed the podcast and that you've been listening and checking out episodes while you've been working in the studio. Always good thoughts listening to other artists and certainly helps contribute to discussion. You can also contribute to the discussion on social media, so be sure and like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break and, of course, on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. Help spread the word, share some interesting stuff. Again, we just had a slew of applicants for our Studio Break student competition, so go and check out some of the applicants. A lot of great work there, so check out our feed on Instagram. I want to thank Skylar Mail. He provides the music to Studio Break. Go check out his artwork at SkylarMail.net. If you'd like to see some of my paintings, go visit DavidLinaway.com. There's a bunch of different work up there, new work, old work, so check it out. And, of course, you can find me in social media, so say hello on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter, at DavidLinaway, and, of course, on Instagram, at DavidLinaway. Always great to hear from listeners, and I hope that especially people are you know, being supportive and encouraging and fighting for justice out there. So again, I hope everybody is doing that, doing their part, speaking out and staying safe, staying productive. Hope that you enjoyed today's episode. We'll talk to you real soon.